At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Hello, I'm David Nutt and uh, welcome to another Drug Science podcast. Today we have David Luke, who's a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Greenwich, and he's one of the pioneers of psychedelic research in the UK. Welcome, David. Thank you very much, David. Nice to be here. It's good to have you on board. And uh, I mean, it's interesting that you are a lecturer in psychology, but you're interested in psychedelics. Has there ever been any conflict between your uh, your department and you in terms of what you do? No, not especially. Uh, I always thought there might be some, you know, frowning going on here and there, but uh, never really witnessed any any resistance to it. You know, when I finally kind of came out of the closet about my my research interests, I got a lot of kind of curious knocks on the door of people who were kind of, you know, oh, that's really interesting. So I think secretly people are uh, quite interested in this research area. Well, yeah, I think we sort of found the same, you know, when we started doing our clinical work, you know, People weren't overtly positive, but, you know, they behind the scenes, people were saying, well done, you know, keep it up, you know. They just didn't want to put their head above the parapet. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. so when did you start getting an interest? Can you tell us a bit about your background and how how your, your career developed? Sure. I, I mean, I started off, um, I mean, I was always interested in, in uh, kind of altered states from a young age and actually went to study psychology uh, because of my interest, um, but was kind of woefully disappointed with the little kind of uh, attention that was given in psychology to these mm different states of consciousness and uh, ran screaming from the academy, actually. They asked me back to teach um, and uh, I ended up going into a PhD, kind of exploring transpersonal experiences because at that time, that was the kind of closest field you could go mm-hmm. into, I think, uh, and explore these uh, these states of consciousness, I felt, rather than psychopharmacology. So what does that mean? I mean, this concept of transpersonal, that's a, a word that many of our listeners won't understand. So, I mean, in its basic form, it just means those experiences which take you transpersonal, beyond your personal ego identity, uh, so that you feel you have a deeper connection with something other, maybe another person or another species or a feeling of love and awe Mm. or interconnectedness with the universe or just something beyond your own everyday ego sense, if you like. And this is a construct that is, is it recent in terms of people talking about it or is it old? Well, in terms of people talking about it, perhaps, I mean, it's always been a bit kind of left of field within uh, psychology. I mean, William James, the, uh, the, mm. the father of American psychology, coined the term, but it wasn't until the 1960s, actually, that um, people like Stanislav Graf and, and Maslow and James mm-hmm. Fadiman picked up on this notion and, you know, created the... Uh, the field of transpersonal psychology, if you like. 
So it's been around a while. Yeah, but in terms of sort of getting into academic discourse, I guess it's so it's relatively recent. And and, and how does that sort of map onto other thinking about consciousness? Is it a different form of consciousness, or is it an extension of consciousness? I mean, how do you put it in the sort of framework of of consciousness thought and thinking and theory? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think you know, what do we actually understand by what is consciousness in the first place? Uh, so these are, you know, these experiences are, are within the realm of consciousness, but they're just not ordinary, everyday yeah. kind of experiences, and that they may have kind of profound concomitants and knock-on after effects, such as that people maybe have a less fear of of death, may become more uh, empathic or community-minded or more ecologically minded, and so it, 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 these are profound experiences. Typically, if if they progress in their best way that can have profound effects on the, on the person's individual personality. So I think you can look at it like that. They're within the field of consciousness, but they're just a little bit unusual and uncommon. So why do they occur then? I mean, is it always drugs or can other things bring them on? Well, that's where my research is directed into. I mean, certainly as we're discovering, as you, you're discovering uh, with all this wonderful research, psychedelics are, particularly of all classes of drugs, very good at inducing transpersonal experiences. And yet, from various ancient traditions around the world and even modern day practices, we know that perhaps any old state of consciousness or altered state of consciousness will do for getting you into a kind of transpersonal realm. Although, you know, psychedelic drugs seem to be a lot more reliable at inducing these experiences, but it's often a kind of bit of a sledgehammer for a nut, perhaps, mm-hmm. in that, you know, you could equally have these experiences through just some kind of prolonged meditation or perhaps some yogic practices or time spent in a dark room or something like that. Yeah, I remember uh, one of the things most fascinated me when I was starting to do psychology in university was with a flotation tank. People, you know, you lie people flat in warm water and suddenly, after a few minutes, things are very different. And, and of course, that's now been reconstructed as a, as explaining the fact that our, our brain creates the environment and when it's got no input, it, it creates its own environment. And, uh, and I think for me, the interest lies in what are the relationship between these other non-drug, non-psychedelic states of consciousness and how they map to what we're now discovering, which is, you know, moving forward in a very fast way about psychedelic drugs and their understanding of their action in the brain and the psychopharmacology of those. And can we apply some of that neuropsychopharmacology to non-drug altered states of consciousness as well. It'd be quite interesting, to, but challenging, but interesting to <laughs> scan someone in a flotation tank. I, I can't quite work out how we do it without fusing all the, <laughs> the MRI stuff. But there's also you, you, there's also this concept of putting people in these an anechoic chamber. Do you want to explain to people what that's about? Yeah, so these uh, anechoic chambers were uh, initially built for engineering and acoustics and studying the properties of sound or the absence of sound and sonic devices in acoustically isolated environments. But people doing research in those environments found that they'd often have quite strange experiences inside the anechoic chamber. Mm-hmm. So there's, they suck out all the timber out of the air, these, these chambers. So not mm-hmm. only is there no sound coming in from the outside, but all the sounds created in within it are also extremely deadened. So there's, there's kind of actually negative decibels inside a chamber. And if you combine that with it also being pitch black, kind of kind of seal it off, and so there's no light coming in as well, you have a very unique sensory deprivation chamber uh, with the absence uh-huh. of sound and light. So we did an experiment uh, as kind of art science collaboration 
where people volunteered, I should say, to mm-hmm. go inside the chamber for a, two hours or so at a time. And we found when you use the same kind of measures you use with people on psychedelics, the you know, altered states of consciousness scale yeah. and so on, that people have experiences which are very similar to psychedelic experiences, on paper at least, with the psychometrics. Interesting. And a few other features pop up as well. So like a sensed presence, for instance, was quite common. Really? Oh, the sort of same kind of sense presence as you might get from DMT? Yeah, well, on paper, certainly there's the same kind. I mean, a, a, an experience of sense presence, though mm. typically they weren't the, the fully formed geometric praying mantis aliens or whatever you might get with DMT. Yeah. These were yeah. more just a sense of there's something else or someone else in the room with me. And it was it was very apparent. And in 90% of those cases, they also felt it was quite ominous, which was interesting and perhaps gives us some insight into maybe things like sleep paralysis, uh, where these experiences also occur. So now that's we really, gonna... actually, that's interesting. Yes, uh, as a clinician, I used to run a sleep clinic and sleep paralysis is a really unpleasant disorder. And that's the first time I've ever heard of it. Well, thanks for sharing that with me. Pity the clinic's closed, but <laughs> I'll think about it. <laughs> and then there's this concept of holotrophic Breath work. What is that? So this was actually a technique developed by uh, Stanislav Grof, one of the founders of transpersonal psychology, who was a you know a psychiatrist and was the kind of pioneer of, of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And when, of course, prohibition came in in the 1960s, he had to stop his work with psychedelics and develop this technique, which he, he trademarked called holotropic breathing, which is essentially a, a simple hyperventilation technique of over-breathing, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. but done in along the same principles of you might do a, a psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy session. So people are wearing eye shades, they've got very loud evocative music playing, but they're, they're going into this kind of over-breathing technique of hyperventilation, which induces an altered state of consciousness, quite this kind of dreamy state, some amount of perhaps abreaction where there's unconscious material coming up to the conscious mind and people are often exploring previous traumas or buried memories or having insights about various personal, interpersonal kind of psychological dimensions of, of their own uh, history. Interestingly, that holotropic breathwork technique, although it's been studied clinically quite a lot for years, nobody's really explored it as an altered state of consciousness in the same way we explore psychedelics again. So we have all these lovely measures of the the psychedelic space and the predictive variables, but not of these other non-drug altered states, which have Mm -hmm. been around for years, but no one studied them in a kind of pure kind of consciousness way. So that's your research. You're trying to look at the overlap, similarity, dissimilarities. And I mean, in terms of, of, do they have, well, you've kind of touched on the the holotropic potentially allowing memories, suppressed memories to come up. but can they all be therapeutic? Do you think, or do you, is that one of the questions you're addressing? Uh, well, I'm not. I'm not so interested in the in the clinical side. I mean, I think it's really important, obviously. But uh, my my own research direction is not particularly clinically focused, although I keep an eye on mm. that, and that's one of the things we'd like to explore. A lot of that research has been done, you know. So the, all of these old states seem to have some therapeutic potential. And often that's how they've been used. But, you know, I'm, I'm more exploring it from the dimension of how do they relate to other altered states of consciousness. Uh, I mean, holotropic breathwork has been used therapeutically for, for many years already. And you can probably find reviews of, of the clinical efficacy of that out there. Although it probably hasn't been done in a kind of 
you know, standardised, placebo-controlled, yeah. randomised way. It's a funny thing, though, because when I was running an anxiety disorders clinic, one of the diagnostic tests we used to use in people who tended, who had panic disorder was get them to hyperventilate, and they just couldn't. Within, within you know, <laughs> ten, 10 breaths, they were panicking. So it's, it's fascinating that you can hyperventilation can produce a profoundly different state depending on what, I guess, your base, you know, your vulnerability to anxiety. Or yeah, it's interesting, actually. You know, in the, in the 1950s and 60s, that one of the things when they were obviously working in a kind of non-clinical context a bit more, things were a bit easier and freer back then, one of the main people kind of distributing LSD at the time would pre-test people for how they would respond by giving them carbogen which is a mixture of uh, carbon dioxide and oxygen, which gives you a very short but intense altered state of consciousness, you know. And if, if people really freaked out, he decided not to give them LSD as a consequence. Uh, so he used it as a kind of <laughs> yardstick testing ground for how they would react to this, this intense altered state. But interestingly, I mean, I don't know if, if holotropic breathwork particularly works along the same principles as carbogen as such, you know carbogen you're having a massive increase in the amount of carbon dioxide you're inhaling whereas in hyperventilation you're you're getting an, an increase in, in oxygen so they, they seem to work in in very different ways physiologically but the end result is that people get into these often profound altered states of consciousness um, so the, i think the underlying physiology of, of those experiences deserves to be explored more as well in terms of what we can learn about consciousness in the brain yeah i mean absolutely although again it's difficult because you change blood flow when you're using mr methodology correcting for changes of blood flow really is really quite challenging but maybe eg or meg uh, would, would be a way forward for that but, but uh, your particular research is, is to collect subjective data and try to make sense of the different experiences through this through subjective questionnaires and that in in this regard in this particular project yeah. of mapping out states mm. yeah subjective experience and the phenomenology of that taking primarily a psychometric approach um i do some kind of more behavioral experimental stuff as well exploring things like synesthesia but yeah this particular project is ex exploring the more psychometric angles. But you see synesthesia as an altered state of consciousness as well. It's a more holistic consciousness. I mean, how do, explain to the listeners what synesthesia is first, in case they don't know. <laughs> so synesthesia is actually a, a natural condition, we can say. I mean, it's, it's not pathological typically, but a small percentage of the population actually have synesthesia congenitally, whereby there is a blending of, of the senses in which you may see sounds or taste colours or have colours associated with numbers or letters or days of the week and so on and so forth. So you have a kind of combined sensory experience where one thing that in, an inducer will also have a concurrent sensory experience which people who don't have synesthesia ordinarily get. Uh, so that's a congenital condition, let's say, amongst a small percent of the population. However, what we find is on People on psychedelics, for instance, very often have this experience. And so the, the really interesting question is, can our study of psychedelic-induced synesthesia tell us something about the underlying neurobiology of congenital synesthesia and therefore about consciousness itself, uh, how experiences become combined? Where do you start this, this idea that... Um the whole purpose of education and development and growing up is about stopping your brain doing the clever things it used to do when you were a child. Are you sympathetic to that view that it's about breaking down the capacity of the brain and making it much more 
limited and rigid. Do you think that's what growing up's about? <laughs> it feels like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I guess to some extent, because, I mean, if you take the example of synesthesia again, so yeah. the, there are, we know that there are a number of, of people, and I was one myself, I had synesthesia when I was young, but it, it, it ah. desisted at a certain point. So it's a developmental, well, it's partially developmental because often some of the experiences you have are linked to developmental indices like reading, you know, letters, numbers, days of the week, time. Mm. We're not born knowing about those things. And yet mm. you can get mm. very specific colours become attached to those. And some people go on to develop it, but some people have it in their youth and then not carry it through into adulthood. Mm. Whereas those people who have, Adult synesthesia have had it their whole life, so in, in some respects we may be we may be restricting um, you know, certain abilities and, and tendencies through the way we socialise and educate children. Uh, it's a possibility, definitely. Well, do you think it's, it's a special sort of trait? Do you think it contributes potentially to, to art or, or creativity? Because some people talk about altered consciousness as having a value in that sense. Well, there are a lot of good examples of famous artists and musicians who've mm -hmm. used their synesthesia in their creativity. And it's generally kind of considered that synesthetes may, may be more, more creative. But, you know, there's obviously a lot of discussion around that in the research literature. Certainly, people can use their create their, their synesthesia in very creative ways, as they can with their other anomalous or exceptional experiences that occur in in psychedelics. You know, um, such mm. as for the use of creative problem solving. What we're beginning to understand is that altered states, such as through the use of psychedelics, can be very good at inducing what we call divergent thinking, but at the same time reducing convergent thinking, which is our everyday logical linear way of solving problems they're very good at creating new solutions very novel sometimes kind of a bit wacky or nonsensical kind of solutions to existing problems but the, the fact is they give us this kind of a fresh creative perspective perspective on on, on old problems quite often yeah, and I guess that's that's why governments are so terrified of them. Why they were banned? Is that would you, would you agree? <laughs> well, I think there's that's probably at least one of the reasons. I would say, yeah, I'm sure there's many many reasons. It is a curious thing why they are so terrified of them when they have so much potential for all manner of positive uses within society. Not least clinically in terms of psychiatry mm. and mental health, but mm. in a non-clinical context as well in terms of improving creativity, relationships, empathy creative problem solving, ecological consciousness, so on. You know, we're, we're forever finding more potential benefits to these extraordinary states. We'll get back to the interview in just a second. I just want to thank all the Drug Science Community members for your continued support. Without you, the dissemination of information like this would not be possible. Drug science is, and always will be, independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. But by becoming a Drug Science Community member, you'll be helping us bring about change. You'll also receive access to exclusive events and will be able to attend all Drug Science events for free. To see how to become a community member, click on the link in the show notes. Now, where were we? Let's get back to the show. Well, let's stick with the last one, ecological... That, that's a new term. That's a term. I, I was at the... I mean, just for the listeners, who uh, you haven't mentioned it, but you, you, know, you were one of the the founders, and I think still are one of the great drivers of Breaking Convention, which is a conference that happens, I think, is it still every year? It's every two years. It takes us a year to recover. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a conference which you hold in your own university down in, in the beautiful, beautiful campus at Greenwich. And 
I was there last year and uh, it was fascinating to hear people, some of the leaders of um, Extinction Rebellion talking about how their sympathy, their, you know, their, their sort of realisation that we were in a really difficult place and had to change came from their own psychedelic experience. That was, is that what you mean by ecological consciousness? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the research that myself and a few others have been doing, uh, some of the research coming out of Imperial has found that people having psychedelic experiences often feel that they've become more ecologically orientated as a result of their experience. And it, this is, we find this with kind of so-called recreational use and even in the laboratory you know, people having psychedelics in, in, in a lab setting mm, still mm. have an increase in what we call biophilia. You know, they have a, an increased kind of desire to be in nature and, and deeper connection with nature purely for their, their psychedelic experience. So, you know, in, in this kind of current ecological crisis that we're in mm. and the sixth wave of mass extinction on the planet, mm, um, mm. It, th- this can be quite crucial and critical in, in helping people who are increasingly urbanised into... Um, being more drawn to appreciate and and care for and have concern for for nature, which is you know not not a small thing really. No, um, no, indeed. I mean, but it's impressive how it. Well, I suppose it's one of the features of um, uh, of certainly of psychedelic and maybe the other altered states of consciousness. How it, they can often be directive in the sense that they can show people a path to do things that you know that they didn't previously think they should do and, and give them the motivation and the drive to do it and good luck to them because we certainly need that kind of leadership don't we yeah absolutely it'd be interesting to know what the kind of drivers for that that are you know exactly i mean it it seems to be kind of generally speaking there's a, there's an increased sense of 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 connectivity on you know every level from the biological to the to the cosmic isn't it you know there's a there's an increased kind of connectivity within yep. the brain yep. within the regions psychologically with with yourself you know uh, sociologically with other people enhanced empathy um and so on and also with the environment and then on up into you know spiritual or or kind of astronomical realms as well you know but how, how do we kind of conceptualize that pharmacologically well i conceptualize it by the value of uh, or the or the purpose of these receptors is to is to, to allow you to think differently, I, you know. With thinking, why, why, why does the brain have so many of these serotonin two A receptors in, in the parts of the brain which do the the important thinking? And, and I think it's got to be something to do with making you think differently. And and it may, it may be when when humanity gets to major challenges like the environmental disaster we're facing, that those receptors can help people think and, and come up with new solutions and and, and behave differently. And, uh, they may be fundamental to the nature of human growth and understanding and, and insight. Um, the brain, you know, at one level is a chemical organ and it's got to be more receptors which actually mediate those kind of altered states of consciousness. And the two-way receptor is certainly what, the most obvious when we have it present and we know it certainly is the one through which psychedelics work. And that's what I find fascinating about it because it's uh, completely orthogonal to conventional consciousness which is kind of... You know, are you awake? Are you asleep? Do you remember? You know, the serotonergic drugs make you think differently. That's why I'm interested in it, because it's a way of probing consciousness. And you, you've obviously come to it from a consciousness perspective. I've come to it from a pharmacological perspective. But we, uh, we're both in the same space, pretty much, aren't we? Absolutely, yeah. Do you ever sort of begin to sort of rub shoulders with religious beliefs? Do you think your research helps people understand that? To some extent, yes. Um, I mean... What, well, I mean, one of the interesting things we find from psychedelics, I think, and, and other altered states and, and 
you know, practices into exploring one's own consciousness is, is people tend to be less religious uh, and, and, and kind of turn themselves spiritual. So they're kind of people moving away from, mm. you know, classic, you know, uh, monotheistic religious beliefs perhaps and, and moving mm. into more kind of agnostic or other areas. You know, the recent research they've been doing at Hopkins, they found that people had had profound experiences with DMT, either encounters with God or encounters with entities of some kind. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the majority of people who, who called themselves atheists before would, would categorize themselves as being non-atheist afterwards. And this could be after one 10-minute experience of DMT, which is, you know, mm. extremely profound. But typically not towards a classic organized religion, more towards a kind of, mm. I'm a non-atheist, I'm not quite sure what I am, maybe agnostic, maybe spiritual, but something other. So I, I think it def- definitely does come up against um, religious religious belief, but in the not in the classic way, perhaps. Mm. I remember this great quote uh, from Paul McCartney after he took DMT, he said, I'm not sure I saw God, but I knew there was something more to life. I think he got in a lot of trouble for that, didn't he? But what about things like <laughs> precognition and telepathy? I mean, do you see they're in, are they in the same sort of arena or are they experiences as opposed to changes in content? I mean, to tell us about them and why you're interested in them. Sure. I mean, so, um, I mean, I, I classify these as exceptional experiences again, and, and people often have them, you know, I mean, well, a lot of people will have an experience like that at some point in their life, but they're not very common. But, you know, over the course of a lifetime, the majority of people will have one experience where they say, oh, yeah, uh, I had this dream. And then sure enough, the next day something yeah. happened, which was very like the dream. Or, you know, granny turns up at three o'clock in the morning and starts waving, saying goodbye. And then the next day they find out that granny died at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, these occur, but not very often, but enough that people have these experiences. But we find in altered states of consciousness, such as with psychedelics or dreams. And in fact, most of these experiences tend to occur in some kind of altered state. Now, that doesn't mean we can just offhand reject them as being some kind of hallucination. Mm. And when we begin to explore these by doing, you know, controlled experiments, we find that we can get reliable effects, even though the effect sizes are very small. You know, when you stack them up over time, we can find, you know, small positive increments above what we might expect to find by chance alone when we we get people to try and access some kind of information from the future, especially when they're in an altered state of consciousness or when you get them to not think about what they're doing at all and just look at their their physiological responses, um, such as, you know, their, their galvanic skin resistance mm-hmm. response to emotional or neutral images, which then are, are coming up in the future. So there's a kind of pre-anticipation. So the, there's lots of good data, I'd say, that has been gathered over the years showing that there are very small but perceptible effects where we seem to be able to access information from the future in, in, in a way which does not rely on inference. Well, it's actually, this is quite complicated. So can you <laughs> maybe just explain how an experiment like that would work, please? Uh, okay, so um, I, I, I give you the example of my experience I've been doing with, with people under the influence of psychedelics and not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they are told to try and visualise a target, which will be a one-minute video clip 
they, they don't know the contents of it. There'd just be a one-minute video clip from a movie. They, they, they come up with some kind of visualisation, uh, which we record, and then they're shown four one-minute video clips. And they have to then say, well, it was a little bit like this one, not much like that one, a lot like this one. And so they mm-hmm. rank order the four video clips they see relative to their visualisation. And then a random number generator will then decide what the actual target was. So this is completely independent. It's somewhat abstract, but it's also you know independent. And there's no possibility of them beyond pure statistics, you know, probability mm-hmm. of, of guessing mm-hmm. what the, the random number generator is going to select. And yet we find that there is a kind of positive deviation that they get the target more often than chance. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and, we, and we've just published a paper from the... Um, data from the you know, Global Drug Survey, we asked a question. In our early psilocybin experience, we had a few people that were colorblind and they said they could see colors better afterwards. And, and of course, you know, when I spoke to phys- my physiology friends, they said that's impossible because color blindness is in the retina. But so we put a question into the you know, Global Drug Survey and turned out that about 50 people answered it. A significant number of people do see colors better after psychedelics and sometimes that's that's enduring and, and, and these are colorblind people and it opens up your mind to the fact that the you know the mind is doing a lot more than just processing what's coming in through your eyes which is clearly what you're you're discovering as well i kind of interpret it a bit as it, as it again as we touched on earlier a lot of what the mind does is stop you doing things because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know they, the brain's a lazy organ it just wants you to get, look come on you know get this work done get back home you know get your you know feed me and sleep me Whereas if you start to start fantasizing about the future and changing your, your perception of worlds, you know, the brain gets irritated. Which, of course, you know, when, and which is, uh, I guess, what, uh, what Huxley was talking about with the brain. You know, the brain is a device for limiting the mind. Would you agree with him? I, I think that, you know, there's some value in what Huxley said. I mean, it's, it's very, very simplistic, kind of neuropharmacologically speaking. But, it, you know, in essence, I think there's a lot of value in the, this idea that the, the the brain acts to just yeah just kind of keep things as ordered as possible mm. and, and filter out what isn't just completely necessary and tries to make as many shortcuts as possible and then mm. psychedelics have this action of turning off that reduce reducing valve of the brain as Huxley called mm. it and just opening you up to a whole wealth of sensory experience which you you know you wouldn't ordinarily have but yeah these these perceptual anomalies are, are very interesting I've been getting interested in in aphantasia where people have no mental imagery and how they respond to to psychedelics and also sorry tell us a bit more about that i've never heard of aphantasia uh so that's it's only recently had a name which is extraordinary and it's one of those things when as soon as you give it a name loads of people go and you and it becomes public knowledge everybody goes oh i've got that i didn't realize (laughs) there was anything different about me you know so it's people who have no mental visual imagery whatsoever you know if you get them to try and visualise an elephant, close their eyes and see an elephant, they they just don't see anything. It's just black. Don't tell me you've got a fantasia, David. <laughs> I'm just... you. Can you see an elephant? <laughs> I can. Yes, I'm working on it. Carry on. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Um, and so these people, you know, they, they they just assume when other people are talking about visualising yeah. things, they're speaking metaphorically. And, yes, but then they yes. discover actually, no, they're in a maybe a small percentage, maybe one or two percent of people who have no mental imagery, visual imagery whatsoever. So the curious thing is, well, what happens when we give them extremely potent psychedelics? That is very interesting. And what does happen? Well, (laughs) uh, so it seems so far, in the case of uh, most people don't 
see anything still, even yeah. like extremely mm. potent DMT mm -hmm. experiences. They get all the other effects, but they right. just don't get any visual effects. Whereas we have found that there's one case of a person who had a Fantasia since his childhood, but then was able to see a mental imagery after his ayahuasca experience. But it seems that he probably had some kind of functional aphantasia. So yes, there seems to be yes. a difference. Yeah. It seemed to be induced at a young age by trauma as opposed to being born with it. So, you know, there's a lot we can learn about consciousness and imagery and so forth as well. And have you ever worked with hypnosis? Because that's an interestingly ordered state. You know, I, I guess that might appeal to you. It's on my list. It's on my to-do list, David. Um, I am planning to do some um, hypnotic regression with people who've had psychedelic experiences and, and then see you know, how much of the experience we can recreate purely through hypnotic suggestion. Obviously, suggestibility is going to be a factor. But I think, you know, that has a lot of potential in maybe helping us understand some of the underlying neurobiology and also potentially in mm -hmm. having some utility clinically as well. You know, um, if people are having remission from depression on their first psilocybin experience, mm. but then the, the experience wanes, do we necessarily want to have to keep giving them psilocybin or could we look to explore reinducing the experience through, you know, hypnosis or something like that? You think you might be able to do that? That's the news to me. That's fascinating. I, I never thought about that. Yeah. The, the, there were a, a couple of papers back in the 60s where they they'd managed, and uh, Arthur Hastings again a few years later, but there's only been about two or three studies when they managed to reinduce full-blown psychedelic experiences. People said it was like a nine out of a ten in terms wow. of their psychedelic experience. Well, yeah, but the majority of people do remember their psychedelic experiences, so they're there somewhere. I mean, they're in, they're, there's a circuit which has encoded them. And reading um, some old literature, you know, in the beginning of the uh, 1900s on, the, on hypnosis, and individuals who had been hypnotised were able to do things like remember objects or directions with a precision way better than they could when they run hypnotized. Again, suggesting that that when you get sort of the, your subcortical brain is actually a pretty sophisticated brain. It just gets blocked out by your cortex. Yeah, yeah. The cortex can get in the way sometimes, no? Well, yeah, I think that's its purpose, isn't it? Again, it, I mean, at one level, yeah. I mean, you know, most most creatures manage to live pretty well without much of a cortex. You know, dogs, but, you know my do my dogs are much more emotional and much more in tune with the world than I am. <laughs> they don't have yeah. anything like the sort of the huge cortical influences over their emotions that we do. What about your? What, what does your work help us think about disorders like schizophrenia, where you've got altered states of consciousness which are kind of destructive and potentially, you know, harmful to the person or, or to others? I think it's interesting, and I think there is a lot to learn. And obviously, psychedelics, when they were first new to the psychiatry, they were thought of as psychotomimetic in that they, mm -hmm. they would mimic a, a psychotic experience. And I think there's there's some things that can be learned, but I think that you know there's there's not a one to one overlap or or model, you know, of the of schizophrenia to a psychedelic experience. Say, I mean, and they kind of differ in perhaps. I mean, obviously, you can get delusional with psychedelics, but in terms of the hallucinations, typically, in my understanding, mm. schizophrenia is more auditory hallucinations, whereas psychedelics are, are very visual. Uh, and mm. it's not a hard and fast rule, but I think there's something that can be learned. What I think would be really interesting to explore is those experiences where people do develop prolonged psychosis triggered by a psychedelic mm. experience mm. and how that is similar or different to classic psychosis. Then again, it's hard to tease apart 
is the psychedelic inducing the psychosis or is it just activating an underlying psychosis? And, you know, the, the epidemiology would suggest it's just triggering an underlying psychosis in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's something to be learned there, but um, I, I don't think that there, there's a one-to-one map between these no, old no. states and, and schizophrenia, for instance. Well, of course, that gets to the question of cannabis. I mean, have, have you ever worked with cannabis, which is a sort of halfway house to... Between, yeah, it all it's a it's an altered state of consciousness. It's not as profound, obviously, as a psychedelic, but it's it's definitely real, real a real change. Have you have you ever worked in that space? No, I've I've not been so interested in 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 uh, cannabis uh, in my my career. Although I do, I think it 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 certainly can be psychedelic. You know, not in it's not a classic psychedelic as in being serotonergic in that way but it is i mean the experience is uh, the right dosage or the right individual can be very psychedelic like mm. uh uh and it might be that we can learn more perhaps from psychosis from 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 cannabis uh, perhaps in terms of the the more of the kind of experiences it, it can produce i mean it seems it you know has a good, a good tendency to induce paranoia certainly in a certain, a certain amount number of people perhaps these strongest strains of cannabis that we you have these days with without cbd you know there's like nature somehow seems yeah. to know best and has has inbuilt checks and balances and we've gone along and go oh great let's just ramp up the thc and really then ramp up the the paranoia mm, and delusions course, as well yeah, you know so you've been working in this field for oh, I don't know, 20 years now yeah maybe more i don't yeah. know <laughs> <Yeah>. and how <laughs> how is the rest of psychology catching up, or are you still a bit of an anomaly? Well, I think I'm still a bit of an om- anomaly. I'd, I hope so, or I'd have to change career <laughs> career direction. <laughs> uh, but it it certainly has changed drastically since you know I started out. You know, in my my own interests. Um, I mean, you, you you couldn't really even study psychedelics twenty years ago, and and now of course it's it's a hot button topic, and everybody wants to do it. I think some of the more exceptional experiences. Are, are, are still sidelined a bit, but we're starting mm. to see those being explored more. And I think that's that's really important and useful because, you know, if, if we're exploring this terrain, we want we want to include the full spectrum of, of human consciousness in these experiences. A, for what we can learn about the nature of consciousness and human experience, but also B, for the, you know, their potential in helping people deal with these experiences if, if, if and when they do mm. have them, which if people are going to have psychedelic therapy or psychedelic experiences, they probably will. So mm. we need to really better understand them and be prepared to to kind of help people integrate those experiences, I think. But yeah, it's catching up. <laughs> you think we'll have a discipline of uh, psychedelic psychology? As a, are you, I mean, are you, maybe you're even teaching that course, are you? I am. I am, actually. Uh, but it's taken a long while. You know, the education rather lags behind the science, unfortunately, you know, um, I've just started teaching a course as part of an online master's on, mm-hmm. on psychedelics uh, within a, a master's course on transpersonal psychology. But as far as I know, there's no other taught courses anywhere in the country, in the UK, mm-hmm. or anywhere in Europe, I know, of that teaches a courses on, on psychedelics or psychedelic psychology or even psychedelic pharmacology, psychopharmacology particularly. And no, yet there's all this mm-hmm. kind of burgeoning research mm-hmm. coming through. So there's, mm-hmm. there's definitely a... Uh, an educational lacuna there which you know demands to be addressed well david i'm impressed that you've got a master's and if if ever you want someone to come and talk about the the neuroscience of psychedelics feel free to invite me (laughs) i would absolutely love that david i'll I'll take you up on that thank you yes (laughs) well it's been really great talking to you today david Uh, 
our time is up and uh, thanks again and, and keep up the good work you know you're, you're definitely a pioneer and uh, thanks very much indeed well, I hope you enjoyed that. That was a, a race through all sorts of altered states of consciousness, including psychedelics. And David has clearly been one of the pioneers of thinking about how we can integrate these different states of mind into a, a theory of consciousness and also use it to help people think about how to help people and also develop new treatments. So I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. If you have, please share it. Please follow me on Twitter. Please follow Drug Science on Twitter. And ideally, please become a member of the drug science community because drug science is a charity that relies on donations from people like you. And if you sign up to this community, then you'll get opportunities to attend drug science meetings, get our publications in advance, and most importantly, support our important work in terms of delivering the truth about drugs to the general public. Thank you for listening. Thank you.